0: Um, Good evening everybody and welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. My name is Max Delaney and I'm Artistic Director here at ACCA and it's a great um, pleasure to welcome you this evening to our Cities of Architecture um, lecture, um, this this evening focusing on Barcelona. The Cities of Architecture lecture series happens on a monthly basis at ACCA and next month we'll be travelling to Isfahan with Justine Clark and Miriam Gousset. Justin Clark is an Editor, Writer and Honorary Research Fellow at the University of, Me- of Melbourne and Mariam Gassay is a Lecturer in the Architecture um, uh, Faculty of the Built Environment at the University of New South Wales. So details you can get from our website on the programs page, um, but this evening I'd like to begin by sincerely acknowledging the Boon traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin Nations, and we extend our respects to Elders past and present, and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. Before I welcome our guest speaker this evening, I'd like to first thank Starward Whiskey for their Sangria Brava cocktail, a twist on the Spanish summer classic, perfect for a Melbourne winter's night. Um, I'd also equally like to thank our partners at Abercrombie and Kent, bespoke travel consultants who offer unique and informed travel and cultural experiences around the world. This evening, it's an honour and a great pleasure to welcome and introduce our guest presenter, Professor Mark Burry. Mark Burry is the founding director at Swinburne University's Smart Cities Research Institute, an appointment he took up this year in May 2017. Mark is a practising architect who has published internationally on two main themes, putting theory into practice with regard to procuring challenging architecture, as well as the life, work and theories of the architect, Anthony Gaudí. He has been senior architect to the Sagrada Familia Basilica Foundation since 1979, pioneering a long-distance collaboration with his colleagues based on site in Barcelona. Tonight, Professor Burry will be speaking to us about Barcelona, which is a city of great architectural significance, informed by the exemplary urban planning of Ildefance Cerda's mid-19th century grid, which governed the city's urban expansion from the Barrio Gotico. And it's interesting to note, as we actually learned last year that Barcelona I believe is now one of the densest urban centres in the world whilst remaining largely a city of buildings which um, are seven stories tall. Barcelona is of course the home of Gaudi but also hosts many key architectural works by um, architects including José Luis Sert, Le Corbusier and Mies van der Rohe, key pioneers in the modern movement who made their initial mark in Barcelona in the early 20th century. Professor Burry's deep association with the city began in 1977, leading to an internship with a small but dedicated project team completing Gaudi's Sagrada Familia Basilica in 1979, evolving into an almost 37-year-long career role as architect and researcher for much of the task that Gaudi left to his successors. Although Gaudi has been Mark's abiding interest, It has been the successive waves of Barcelona's urban design innovations that have been the most thought-provoking outcome from his four decades-long association with the city, starting with Serda's provocative prototype for a smart city. In his talk tonight, Professor Burry will outline the history of the city's development from a Roman Mediterranean port to a thriving metropolis with an unparalleled progressiveness. So it now gives me great pleasure to hand over to Mark, who will speak about Barcelona in more depth. And there'll also be time for questions at the end. And there'll be a roving microphone. So please um, please join us in welcoming Mark Burry.
1: Thanks, Max, for the um, introduction. <clears throat> and, um... Fantastic to be in this space, talking about Barcelona. Um, <clears throat> you've heard my, my um, encapsulated history. It is, it is a risky thing talking about another city when you're not from that country, let alone the, the, the region. So um, when I was invited to give this lecture, I, I was curious to know why would someone living in Australia from Christchurch, New Zealand, be in a position to um, talk to you on a Monday night about their favorite city, other than Melbourne, of course. Uh, could get that in. Um, and I'm going to talk a bit about Melbourne as I go through. So what, what I decided to do was uh, make this a very personal uh, talk. And the reason for that is, uh, I imagine if I ask for a show of hands, uh, who's not been in Barcelona ever, there'd be not that many. Ready? So nearly everybody's been to Barcelona at least. <laughs> right, yeah. And, and there, are, there, are, there are plans afoot, I hear. Uh, um, so, so I thought, of all the cities, it's, it's one of the more accessible cities. It's so accessible, in fact, it's become a problem. And we've got the, um, uh, the ne- neighborhoods arising are, are against um, the mass tourism, particularly from um, the uh, ferries and cruisers that come in. Um, But then I remembered, um, many of you won't remember life before the internet because you weren't alive then, but for the rest of us, um, there was a time when there was no internet. And if you were uh, an architect working busily in Europe in the 1990s, uh, uh, sorry, 1980s, um, and you needed to get to Barcelona for your fix, because everybody knew that Barcelona was a kind of mecca for architecture. Uh, then actually it was quite difficult to find information about where to go and how to get into the buildings. The reason for that is that the country was under a dictatorship until 1975 when Franco finally popped off and um, democracy was um, instilled. But it meant that there was a, a quite a large section of the population wouldn't involve themselves with Spain in the years before that. It was like a cultural boycott. So you can prove this by looking for books on Gaudí or any of the other architects I might mention tonight. And you'll find that before 1975 there's very little written in English. Um, so uh, the reason I'm telling you this is because uh, in the late 70s when I got that job in Sagrada Media I also acquired a, um, a companion and um, I was actually studying in, in England so I needed to see my companion. So I was um, very pleased to get a job as an architectural guide for a, a company called uh, Architectural Dialogue. And Victoria Thornton, who's actually the initiator of the Open Homes movement, so she's a really prescient person, had worked out that all around Europe, there were architects who just needed to get a fix in two or three days of their you know, cities like Barcelona. And I was the guide uh, for about 13 years, taking three groups um, Christmas, um, November and, and Easter. And uh, so when I got this invitation to give this talk, I realised actually it's no different. I, I had a million buildings to choose from and I had to choose for the, the these architects who wanted to be shown around before the internet could tell them how to find this information out. So what I decided to do was, to, first of all, I'm going to introduce you to um, the, the structure of Barstone. For anybody who doesn't know the Cerda story, I'm going to give a so that 's the, the the planner i 'm going to give a, a, a brief introduction and then i 'm going to move through about fourteen projects, pretty much in chronologi- chronological order and i 'm um, hoping that those of you who have been in Barcelona some of them will you 'll be revisiting old friends but there 'll be many that you didn 't even know about, let alone had a chance to visit. Um, do feel you can interrupt me at any point uh, if it 's about where is this building i 'm showing you i 've promised Jesse to provide a, a map or a list uh, for anybody who is interested afterwards. So starting with, um, well m- my story was simply that I, I was um, a fan of Spain when I was a, a kid in New Zealand because of Ferdinand the Bull was my favourite um, favorite book. So when my parents decided to take us to North Portugal it was the one place in Europe that had a lifestyle similar to the New Zealand one that we had left behind. Plus, um, it didn't have any people from the UK there, which seemed to be an important counterpoint to them. Um, we we would drift uh, in a three-day epic in a car from. This is before. This is in the in the 60s and the early 70s. There weren't, <coughs> would you believe, there weren't freeways in those days. So you literally, and half the roads in Spain were uh, in gravel. So we'd start off in London, and drift south and on day 3 we'd finally get to the part of Spain which was really very unknown relatively speaking the so little roads didn't have gravel i uh, didn't have tarmac and we'd arrive on the on the 3rd day in portugal so uh, i just loved those journeys because of what we saw so in fact i got to know spain quite well as a as a kid but it wasn't until i was in my um, early 20s uh, that i got to barcelona and the reason i got there was because of gaudi and as a student at the University of Cambridge, we were told quite emphatically, because that's their style, um, that uh, Gaudi was not an architect for us to um, bother with, because um, he was, I think I can quote, um, possibly a genius, but definitely quite mad. Um, but that wasn't, the, that wasn't the condemning bit. The condemning bit was after the comma, um, besides which there was no school. And what they meant was that Gaudi was this unique figure who um, we might, some of us, who, like madness, feel that his work has, gives us a lift. Uh, others, if we were intellectually disposed and looking for the lineage, uh, were confused by, by where might he have come from and anyway, he didn't go anywhere, did it? And all his buildings were unfinished. So um, given my cultural um, background is from this part of the world obviously when you're shown a red light you take that as a green so I got to Barcelona in 1977 and I was amazed by many many things I was amazed at how many Russians there were uh, in the city and the reason for that is because if you don't speak Catalan, um, Catalan which is a minority language spoken by 6 million people um, it sounds more Russian to somebody who doesn't speak Russian or Catalan than Spanish which I was s- vaguely familiar with so um, I, I fell in love with the city then, I was already enamored of Gaudí, but the most amazing thing I discovered was that Gaudí was only one of many, many um, uh, architects of merit. So I will, I will brush through Gaudí in the context of what I'm gonna talk about tonight, but it's not a lecture about Gaudí, it's about Barcelona. So, uh, let's show some images. Uh, did you know that um, the word urbanization didn't exist until 1867, and it was invented by Ildefonso Cerdà, who was the engineer who was given the task of planning Barcelona in that way that we recognise from the, uh, I think I pressed the wrong button there. Turn that one off. Is there a, a kind of like a laser thing? No? No pointer? Okay, and that's all right. I can say if you look... Where, where did that white square come from? That doesn't look. That, that worries me. Okay. If you if you can see the bottom half of the book is is the uh, Gothic part of the of the city. It's a, a Roman si- uh, port called Barcino, and up until the 1850s, the Madrid central government would not l- allow the city to expand beyond its borders. But when it came to um, it just became a a crisis, a lot of illness. And uh, Söder, in this this book, um, invented the smart city. So not only did he invent urbanisation as a term, i.e. the science of um, thinking about cities, he did it through a very logical way. He did all the hard work. He collected statistics and was the first person to associate health generally, not just cholera, but health generally with overcrowding and he proved it in this book, and, uh, and you know, he wrote words as well, and, and then he actually put a plan together, which we can see here. Now the backstory is quite an interesting one. So he's an engineer from Madrid, but the Catalans who had been yearning to get out of that Gothic quarter which is stuck, you can see where the walls were, Um, but weren't allowed to. There were two military establishments, there's one on the left and the green, see that red... Actually, that's the plan, but um, there were two of these citadels, and the Catalans actually began to see, well, probably always saw these citadels as forces of oppression rather than defensive uh, things. Um, but what happened was they, the Industrial Revolution came to Spain much later than other parts of Europe, Northern Europe particularly, which meant that there was a bit of a shorter um, span between invention and development and there was just an incredible um, economic explosion and um, they just needed to get out of that, that medieval quarter. Uh, the city of Barcelona ran a competition in the late 1850s. Cerda was given the, the, the job as a surveyor to do um, a, a map of the whole area, um, and that was, that was his task. Meanwhile, the city of Barcelona actually ran a competition had three winners for a grand expansion to the city, round about the area that you can see here. But meanwhile, Cerda had been thinking about this himself and had produced his own plan and uh, the Catalans then had the Cerda plan imposed on them by, um, by the Madrid central government. So an engineer actually got the task of, of designing Barcelona, not the architects. But what did they get for this? Well, they got a, a man with such extraordinary vision, he realized that um, it was possible to predict the arrival of the railway and that railways and street level are not compatible. So here's one of my first Melbourne, Barcelona, because we're talking about similar times. This is not 1859, 1860, and they were already thinking about the incompatibility of railways and traffic. So all the all the trains were buried. There were steam trains, so they were in these sort of, in channels, but obviously when the electricity came by, they were able to put a roof over them. Uh, if you can just see, Each of those squares, there's kind of a black block, and it's on two sides only. And that's because Serda thought you could actually separate the pedestrian infrastructure from the uh, thoroughfares, so that you would actually drift between the blocks as a pedestrian, crossing roads obviously in between. Um, In other words, he was thinking about walkability. for those of you who want the theory, it's called polycentric egalitarianism. The idea was the city could expand forever, always creating new mini-centres. These aren't um, philosophies that are very far from what we're thinking about in terms of dealing with Melbourne. The thing is, we're dealing with Melbourne, and they dealt with it in anticipation. And as, um, as, as we heard earlier on, you know, the city is, is six more or less six stories high, but it has been and remains one of the most densely um, occupied cities in, in the world and we'll, we'll talk about the implications in that as well. Um, the grid had to accommodate the existing uh, cities of the, the old city down in the south there and up at the top of the picture there's Grathia and you can see there's a river on both sides so the polycentric egalitarianist um, opportunity were, were rather limited by a river by the sea, by the mountains which aren't shown uh, to the Top of the picture and another river on 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 the left but it was a great theory and it it meant that markets were placed at certain intervals hospitals at certain intervals so the 20 minute city that we're talking about in melbourne now the idea that you're 20 minutes from anything work school hospital shops that was actually part of this this philosophy and it's there and then the last thing to comment on is if you can just see the intersections. A few people haven't been there. Those of you who have have noticed that they're octagonal. Uh, the reason for that was he felt that if you said something like, let's meet at the corner, the corner should meet some, mean something. It's not just a, a right angle, but it's actually a much more generous uh, uh, um, arrangement. Uh, the reason is practical as well. It meant that it, there was no predetermination of where trams would go. So you could actually redesign a tram route without having to worry about turning a right angle. Um, it also, uh, a very civic um, o- opportunity. So my first um, uh, building to look at is Santa Maria del Mar um, in the Gothic quarter. Uh, those are the dates, uh, 1829, 1329 to 1383. Now the architect for this building is uh, remarkable. Um, and this building, for those of you who have been there, is, is it's sensational for its minimalism. And the minimalism, uh, something I realized very early in the piece was something which was a kind of innate characteristic of, of Catalonian, Catalan architecture, uh, whether it's historical or, or recent. When I made this observation um, to someone quite early in the piece, I said, you know, you seem to have an extraordinary um, a refinement and a minimalist approach to everything. He said, "Oh, don't you know the the, the history of what of wire?" I said, "No." You know wire? He said, "Oh yes. Yeah, two Catalans fighting over a peseta. So he his that's um, he, this is a Catalan telling me this that he felt that Catalans have had a history of dealing with relatively um, few resources. A lot of Catalans will tell you about how difficult it is to put roads and railways on a very, very mountainous part of Spain compared to other parts. And so this idea that you needed to get good value for whatever you invest um, is actually visible. So if you look at on the, without this pointer, but if you look at the window um, on the left-hand side of the door, that those are columns made from a very hard sandstone. Um, goodness knows how they, they made them, but you'll find that any of the Catalan Gothic that they could make these um, extraordinary thin stone elements, do a lot of work. When you go inside here, you find it's it's just an extraordinary space. It's actually by the same architect as the architect who did the uh, cathedral in Mallorca. I'm really sorry that I'm always looking over at the side of the audience. It's because I have to see what I'm, but it's not, you know, it's not personal. (laughs) Um, The the architect for uh, the cathedral of Mallorca has been determined as the most efficient gothic structure of all time. And what is an efficient structure? An efficient structure is one where the vertical forces have been channeled into a straight line. Sorry, the, 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 the gravitational forces have been channeled into a straight line. In structures, you often have forces coming laterally. And if the force is lateral, it means you have to have either the column leaning into the force, which we don't see very often, or you have a column that's made fatter in order to be able to take these lateral forces. Now the architect of these three buildings, this one, the one in Mallorca and one in Manresa to the north of Barcelona, um, somehow managed to get the the structures and that is why those columns are so so extraordinarily thin and also very wide apart. Um, It means that when you go into this, this space, the first thing you notice is just how much volume there is and how little it's included by the columns. So this would be, um, those of you who haven't been to the Santa Maria del Mar, I recommend it, it is one of the most sublime experiences you'll have, knowing that it's been there for almost 800 years and was built relatively quickly. Um, The pictures I've got of it, um, just you can get the sense of how little occlusion uh, there are of columns. Even going into a parish church, you'll find, if you're sitting on the side, you can't really see much of the altar because of the massive columns. And the reason the columns are massive is because the forces are not being directed vertically. Uh, It's an engineering thing, but basically you're trying to use the geometry of the building to get those forces. Um, Most beautiful stone um, rose window, again, extremely old. It's not what it should be because uh, in the Spanish Civil War I think at least 500 churches were attacked by the anarchists and set fire. The uh, church at that time um, sided with Franco and it meant that if you weren't with Franco you weren't with the church. So this building was completely burnt out inside so there are all sorts of things missing so the minimalism you see in the structure, through force of circumstance, means that there's a minimalism in the amount of stuff inside the actual church, often, because it just, it's just it was made of timber and it was burnt. You can see on the right-hand side the, the windows just how thin those stone elements are, given the size of the window. And they're very kind of minimalist vaulting. So very early Gothic. So early Gothic in terms of the style, but um, Far, you know, performing far more, far much, far more significantly than Gothic. Um, you would typically see the organ, and then there's columns that you get going down the nave, just literally, simply turn round and do a circle round the ambulatory. So, in terms of minimalism, there is no way you could make a simpler gesture structurally to get this volume enclosed. So that's my first building. There's the umbilic tree. So the next one is um, the, uh, an industrial building. So at the same time that Serda had planned the uh, expansion of the city, uh, we had um, Dominica Montanet, who's one of the three great so called Mononista architects. So we've heard of Gaudi, but quite a few people haven't heard of uh, Dominica Montanet or Pucci Gadafal and they were slightly older than Gaudi and actually set things up for him to be experimental. So the building I wanted to show you is actually called the uh, Editorial um, Simon, Um, but it's a publishing house, uh, which is what it looks like this, but it's more than a publishing house. So this is, uh, I'm doubling up here, this is an art gallery for the uh, sculptor and artist Tapias. Uh, So it's the Fundacio Tapias. And uh, you can see there's a Tapia sculpture on the roof. It's right in the center of the city. I'm surprised at how many people have been there, seen it from the outside and not gone inside. So I thought with your indulgence, if there's anybody sitting here slightly embarrassed by this, I can show you what it looks like inside. I'm not pointing the finger. This is uh, uh, one of the few actual pieces of Tapia to show you on the, on the gallery at the back. But it's a remarkable um, building uh, from a technical point of view, because it's one of the first Buildings using a cast iron in a a very um, spirited way. So, back to that minimalism, those are those of you who aren't architects, which presume quite a few of you, maybe, um, those are ludicrously thin columns uh, doing a lot of work. You can see that. And uh, I, I love the idea that Barcelona expanded so quickly in the middle of the 19th century through its its industrial wealth. But the industrial wealth also translated into artistic and architectural expression. They were synonymous. So it's a great building to visit. It's it's open every day except Monday. Um, Beautifully um, restored in, see my notes. It was, um, it'd been sort of dilapidated until it, the foundation was set up and it was opened in 1990 so this space has been around for quite a few years now and then as as you get towards the back of the building there you can see the, the this beautiful beautiful structure and the library remember it's a, it's, a, it's a publishing house so that's been retained and then as you get to the back of the building, you can see that the architects have uh, the, the renovation architects who are um, a couple called uh, Rosé Amado and Luis Dominic Giraval. You can see that they've adopted the same language and done this beautiful job of it. And then there's fa- fabulous roof terrace at the back. And Gaudí, um, so you can see that Gaudí is actually after Dominic Montanay and Pucci Gadafalk. so he wasn't the originator of this, um, this kind of architecture. who's just somebody who took it in a particular way. I'm going to show you two projects very briefly, but this one is the one I wanted to dwell on. Now this is not quite in Barcelona. It's about 20 minutes out in a place called um, uh, Santa Coloma de Servilleur. And um, the, his major patron was a, a chap called uh, Count Guey, And Count Guay started a factory making corduroy in, the, in this, this town just outside and he felt that it was important not only to provide his worker housing that he would provide a little chapel for them to go on Sunday and, and, and be thankful for the work that they were allowed to have in his factory and so they commis- he commissioned Gaudi for several projects but this one in 1896 was to design a small chapel. So Gaudin now was something like uh, at the Sagrada Familia for 14 years. He was sort of in his 40s and had begun to think about architecture in this very novel way. And what he decided to do was actually ask gravity what a building should be in terms of its form. In other words, instead of just modelling a building from its appearance, he actually wanted to model its weight. So this model that you can see here are little bags of birdshot that he's used to precisely model that particular architectural element. And he's hanging them upside down. So you're looking at a, ch- a little chapel upside down, which when you take a photograph and paint it, you get the Im- impression of the building. Uh, I haven't got time to give you a lecture on this building. It's a, it's a building that's worth several lectures because it's just so fascinating. But I hope you can just see in that picture that there's a whole lot of little bags of bird shot and they're connected by string and there's a piece of sailcloth inside so he's able to photograph it. Why am I laboring this? It's because he labored for 8 years on this. Okay, so for us it means thinking back to 2009, something that happened in your lives then and think, I know I'm going to do a church It's going to be based on a hanging set of weights, and it's, these weights are going to tell me what the building is going to look like. And if it doesn't look like it the way I want it, I'm going to move the weights around, the weights meaning bits of building, I'm going to add a tower somewhere, and the tower will pull it down. Um, and took him, took him eight years. Um, with the client, you, you can imagine what kind of relationship he had, that, a fantastic one I would say, if you can go to a client after eight years, and you have a, a photograph that you've painted over, and you say, you know, what do you reckon? You know. And the client says, well, you know, sure. What does it look like inside? Oh, it's all right. It um, looks like that. And so w- what this shows us is that Gaudi, who um, was actually a very conservative man, he started off uh, life uh, from a very humble origin. His father was a coppersmith. So the story goes is that he saw his father convert sheets of flat copper into kettles. So he got this you know, spatial sensibility from the earliest age. But when he went to Barcelona to seek his fortune as an architect, it wasn't that, that easy for him, so it was very good that he, he made this acquaintance. But he went from this... Um, when he started doing quite well, apparently he, he got sort of a bit above himself. He would arrive on site in a horse and carriage and take the window down and bark out orders and then put the window back up. Um, but at the end of his life, when he died, he was run over by a tram wearing clothes that were so humble... Uh, that nobody knew who he was, and they thought he was a, a, um, uh, a, a vagabond, and he went to the pauper's hospital. In his pocket were um, a, a small number of raisins and almonds because he was a strict vegetarian, high, highly spiritual. So it's quite an interesting thing about God. He was incredibly conservative in terms of construction. His, uh, his line was why would you take a risk with a novel material system if you already can do it with a, a tried? On the other hand, he thought that design was innovation, so everything he did was innovative. So you can see this as an innovative way to think about how you get the least... Sorry, Of course, the point of doing gravity is that by using gravity to find the form of the building, it's also showing you how to use the least amount of materials. So it's back to this minimalist thing, because all the lines of forces are being described by your model, which means that you can use the minimum amount of material, just like those columns in the first church. Um, But I also like the idea that he used a a camera to photograph the model. And so he was quite, so this is like a a sort of photoshop before digital. You know, he's he's taken a photograph and he's painted over it and there's the interior. And then the model itself was at 1 to 10 scale and it was hanging outside the site. It's an undrawable building. The only way you can actually take any information from this is to go to the model, measure it and then turn the measurements upside down. See those props holding the the columns up? That's because the columns are actually lining up with the lines of forces. These columns aren't vertical. They are are facing the the, the lines of forces. And there's this interior. Now the interior took six years to do. So now we've got to take 16 years from, from 2017 and think about what we were doing in 2001. And imagine you got to this point you might say, "Good result, except this is just the crypt of the building, and that's that point that the client decided that he wasn't going to proceed with it well, the client's children actually, watching their inheritance disappear <laughs> in this mad experiment. It, it is Has anybody been to this space? One? That's fantastic, good because it mean means it's worth when you're talking about it. Uh, it's actually not that hard to get to. It used to be very hard. When I used to go there, it was like a, um, a day's effort. Because um, w- once you got to the community, you then had to find the building. But now it's all signposted. There's a little train that goes every 10 minutes. And I think they even charge you money. Um, but it is the most extraordinary space. I've been there, I wouldn't say hundreds, but definitely many tens of times. It still has the same effect. I go in there and something sort of skin curls, or something it is just extraordinary. There is no steel, there's no iron, it's all just brick, apart from the columns which are basalt, pieces of basalt just plucked out of the ground, already formed in this hexagonal shape. Um, Anyway, I could go on for hours about this building, but uh, it's also the the time that Gaudi started looking at geometry and sort of advanced um, mathematics into um, in his work, which is what has been my uh, life and so I mustn't get onto that because we'll never get onto anything. Sagrada Familia, just for those of you who um, have been there but haven't been there recently, uh, it's um, here. We can see the soda grid. We can see what happens when you actually put an effective height control on a city. Uh, it means that something like the Sagrada Familia, which will be the ch- tallest church in the world when it's finished in 2026, um, sits there among it. It was. At the time that it was built, the, the old town is somewhere off on the top left of the picture, and the, um, this, this was meant to be a small parish church uh, to celebrate St. Joseph, the father of Jesus, and the patriarch. So the devotees of St. Joseph were wanting to reinvigorate the idea of the family unit because the family unit was being challenged by all this industrial wealth and the social problems that went with it. That's why they started the little church, Gaudi um, was not the original architect, he joined the project a year in, Uh, it had already started so he was stuck with the Gothic plan, and the reason I'm showing you these two buildings is that this is his magnum opus, but probably the little church I showed you is his greatest work in terms of the amount of invention. I think this is a better work because I love seeing um, somebody like Gaudi constrained by circumstances. With the Colonia World Church he had no barriers, he had an indulgent client, that's why it took him 16 years to build a basement and get no further. Um, this one he actually learnt the lessons of that and he provided a codex using this advanced geometry and that's where my my story comes because when I joined the project in 19… 79, it was exactly the time when they had to think about what would happen for the building beyond that date. Because up until then, they had been copying, effectively, what had already been built by Gandhi. And he'd left these models, and it's a long story, and I'm off already. Um, So the height of the building will be... And that will be finished in 2021, possibly 2020. Um, and the um, rest of the building we, we're not sure about, but it's 2026 for everything that's within the site. There's an embarrassing amount of building out sticks side the site, and that hasn't been sorted out yet. So um, those of you who have been there, say, two years ago or earlier, wouldn't have seen this. It's because the stained glass has only just gone in, and what you're seeing is the effect of having the first two levels in coloured glass and the top level was in clear glass around the whole building, so it means that there's this a ethereal white light. Uh, um, Gaudi never wrote a word, so if you're looking for what Gaudi thought about architecture or the theory of architecture according to Anthony Gaudi, you won't find it. But he um, had these very faithful disciples, and they're literally called disciples, who would record all his aphorisms. He would give them lectures on site about his latest discoveries and in turn they would go out and try and find money and raise money for the building. So we have it in writing that he intended to have the top part of the building in white in in clear glass and and just look at the effect. Uh, He conceived it as being a forest. He wasn't able to use the hanging model because it's a gothic um, church and if he'd used the hanging model it would have been pulled out of shape but it still used a very advanced uh, engineering uh, calculation for it, such that when computers came involved in the building in the 1990s and using something called finite element analysis, there was no need to change anything. They didn't have to change the position of anything, they didn't have to change the dimensions of anything. So what you're looking at is exactly as he um, uh, set out. Um, So you walk into the Sagrada Familia, you're walking into a forest gorgeous white light at the higher level. This was the November the 7th from 2010 when the building was inaugurated by the Pope. It had already been consecrated in the crypt crypt, over a century earlier but this is when effectively the building changed from being a building site to being a building. The construction of it is extremely complicated. all the work that I've been involved in, which in the last 10 years has been the uh, main facade here and the huge auditorium there that floats in space. Um, we had to do all that work uh, on the centre without ever having a model of the building because the 3D printing, which is what has been used for the, to make this model, uh, has only really been happening at industrial scale in the last few years, but say ten years ago we didn't have the printing at this level, and then five years ago we didn't actually have the computational power to even have all of that data. But uh, about uh, seven years ago we started scanning the building, with uh, uh, you know, the sort of engineering scanner, and so for the first time we were able to capture the building. So what I think is very ironic is a lot of the building's been designed without us ever being able to put it as a, in a conventional way, as an architect, in a, in a, in a, in a model. Um, this is a, a column that's been made by a robot out of polystyrene, so we prototype, the, this is the, the passion facade that's based on a drawing. Um, and the, the project's got first and everything, it's the first project to have used 3D printing, it's the first project to use um, uh, long distance um, uh, telecommunications, and first project to use robots. And the robot isn't, this isn't an industrial outfit, this is a third generation uh, stonemason who realized that he could actually make some some advances using this technology and just taught himself how to use seven axis robot to make the columns. Uh, This column actually is, is six and a half meters long. He told me that if he tried to make that column by hand, being so slender, it would snap but by using this technology, he doesn't feel that he's lost anything. So these, these columns in the center of this are nine and this is just finished. This is the passion facade, it was finished uh, last year. The column in the center is nine and a half meters tall, and it has a piece in the middle which is six and a half meters. Which, when you think about it, that's um, three and a half people high, just, and it's only 35 centimeters wide. And that's what it's based on, is this this drawing. And here's the auditorium. You'll be among the few people to have seen this. It's not open to the public yet. So the bottom of the, um, of the auditorium is 70 metres up from the centre of the church. And that'll be glass. And when it's uh, open to the public, you'll be able to look down 70 metres to the centre of the building or look up. If you're down on the bottom of the building and looking up through that glass, you'll be looking at this roof, which is 85 meters. And that's the space here. And uh, I argue that it was a 20 year apprenticeship learning how to build the interior using the models that has given us the, if you like, authority to continue into these spaces which he didn't actually reach himself. And that's the office. And now none of the building is built on site. So another first. It's the most advanced project in terms of prefabrication and off-site fabrication. Uh, we can say it's the most complicated building in the world because there aren't, if there are others as complicated as that, they certainly don't have 4 million people trolling through the building while it's being built above them. So back to, to Dominic in Muntinay. I hope that's the Gaudi bit. Uh, back to this chap who did the little um, publishing house. And I want to show you this project which is the Hospital of San Paulo. Has anybody been to this? It's just on the diagonal from the Sagrada Familia. Uh, it's only just been opened to the public. It has been functioning as a hospital up until about 15 years ago, and then it was closed, new hospitals built next to it, and now it's been restored as a cultural center. Now, each of those buildings you can see is a ward. And it serviced all those buildings, all the circulation is underground. Incredibly progressive for a building that dates uh, um, 1901. And mostly built at that time. It it completed in 1930s a a bit of precision there, but basically it was built in 1901 to 1910. And so this is the main entrance. I'm just going to show you some images of the... Interior. It's a public hospital, um, not, not a not a private one. And um, what I'd like you to think about as you're looking at these is, uh, what's what's the difference between uh, ninety Barcelona, sorry, 1900 Barcelona, and 19 and 2017 Melbourne? That our public architecture, we feel we have to shave dollars off it, whereas they felt it was crucial if you're going to go and have a hospital experience, that this would be your arrival point, and going through, and that's looking down over the hospital, back to the Sagrada Familia. So if you're at the Sagrada Familia, it's relatively easy to get to this. Um, If you went there a few years ago, it's because you're just an architecture nut. Now you go there because it's actually a place that you can visit by an architecture, not. I mean, you had to actually get in through subterfuge. Now you can actually officially enter it. 1905, 1910, I think, probably the dates. That it's, um, so that's in the. This is in the the main entrance area. Um, a kind of interesting fusion of styles. It was at a time when. Um, uh, Catalonia was looking to all its historical references, not just um, Christian. So there are the wards. And the wards were, as you'll see from the interior, were designed to be you know, cross ventilation. I mean, how smart's that? Here's a picture of it actually with people in it. But uh, I, I think, I, I mean, it's all different now, you have your own room or a room of four people, but I, I spent a lot of my youth working in hospitals as a porter and in the UK and, and it was quite common for 24, uh, 24 beds per wing and on an L-shaped configuration and I used to think about um, this space and this London hospital wondering why on earth all hospitals weren't like this and then there's the staircase down to the Um, So the the entire hospital was served underground by these um, and you you can have this AV experience now where they they can give you a sense of what it was like and this believe it or not was the kitchen so that that thing about hospital food it's substantiated here I think Uh, not sure if that's meant to give you um, a lift perhaps that's more and then the same architect went and um, built the Palau de la Musica Catalana. Anybody been to this? Yeah, this is, um, I mean, if you just went to Barcelona and went to this building and did nothing else, I think you'd come back feeling rewarded. Um, just, uh, there's what it looks like from the outside. It was built for the Orfeo Catalana, which is the um, Catalan choir uh, specialising in Catalan um, song and hymns. Um, as as part of that uh, assertion of national identity. So they had a a, a group that set out to find the money to build this. Um, Imagine arriving at night, to something that looked like this, you know, for your night out, and then you go inside, and man, and just look at that ceiling. It's only when you really start uh, uh, having a a good look at it, you realize that there's, I mean, the, the audacity to have a hanging stained glass ceiling that's one third of the area of the auditorium. It looks like that when it's full. And it's got a very good acoustic as well. Now these are slightly out of sync. I really wanted to show the Mies van der Rohe pavilion but um, I, I've got them in the wrong order. So um, this is uh, Jose Louis Sert, which I mentioned at the beginning one of the architects, one of the heroes. He um, has an interesting life. He was a refugee from the Civil War, so left um, when the Civil War started and went to America and became a very well-known American architect. But before he left with um, uh, two other architects, uh, Tanago and... we um, uh, were part of a, a sort of social architecture movement. So Soda's grid, which we started with, got corrupted very soon. His idea was that you had block on each side of the, of the square, garden in the middle, and people would just wander their way through in this, um, this walkable city. And as I say, the people who owned the land realized that actually, what's the point of keeping the ends open? You could put a building there too. So very soon, by the by the end of the century, there was a problem, and there was another competition, and there was the Plan Jassoli, which was uh, won by a French chap to try and sort of sex, sex up the city because it was looking a bit, bit, bit grid and ordinary. Well, equally, when Le Corbusier came by in the 1920s, hit the automobile had sort of made its um, mark, and these. Cerda grids of 133 metres seemed too small. So they decided to actually make a three times the size. So the city block would be 400 metres rather than um, 133. And then cars could race along and they could have um, housing to suit. So the casa block, uh, so this is the, the, tuberculosis, um, but I won't go into that. The Casa block was invented as a radical new form of social housing, low cost, um, a lot of shared facilities, and they um, uh, went ahead and built one. So this is what it looked like as a a model. And here it is built. Um, Unfortunately, it coincided with the beginning of the Civil War, so it got interrupted. And the the very, very um, far-sighted socialist agenda that they had for getting low-cost housing for people who otherwise wouldn't be housed at all was was completely corrupted because Franco took it over as a barracks straight after the war. And then for many years after it became the the the, the accommodation for the hated um, civil guard uh, right up until relatively recently. But now you can go and visit it. This is what it looks like inside. Very, very simple. Um, not so much austere, but um, certainly not extravagant. Um, Catalan uh, vaulting, the, the famous um, building technique that's typical of the region, is actually used for the staircase. Here you can see before restoration and after. So one of these units has actually uh, been restored and Saturday mornings at 11 o'clock you can book to go on a tour. And it's a, great, it's a great, it's a great thing to visit and see, you know, at times before our own, a, a big effort to try and deal with homelessness properly. Um, again, you can see very, very um, low cost, but enough. Um, that's the scullery. And then very so straightforward bathroom and a combination of shower and, wash, uh, and clothes washing and the sort of rather austere way of getting into the building wasn't echoed at the back, which had um, its own balcony. Now at the same time, more or less, it's just a few years earlier, which is why I should have shown you first, um, Mies van der Rohe won the competition for a pavilion um, for the German government. So this is after the, Problems of the first world war and before the the problems of the 1930s but coincided exactly with the birth of the modern movement um, the congress of it, modern architecture, which basically set the agenda for our architecture for the next twenty uh, next fifty years was born and this building was iconic and uh, a lot of people have been to it and seen it um, it 's minimalist in every respect there 's my Uh, This is taken from Apple Maps. Um, I I suppose a lot of people have seen it, I hope. Um, Does everybody realise that it was never meant to be more than a temporary building for six months? Um, And uh, it's such an icon for the modern movement because the fact that it was built did it six months and taken down. And then we had 50 years of of the modern movement with uh, this kind of rational modular architecture, and this is one of the precursors. But One of the most extraordinary things is as a precursor, it existed only as photographs. But in the 1980s, there was a big effort to raise money to rebuild it. And every time I see it, I'm still not convinced that it was better for me before, because I'm I'm of a generation that was influenced by the building through the black and white photographs, not by its actual existential reality. But it's... um, it's a, a great place for um, evening events. I've been to quite a few now where there's been a, you know, a, a, after a conference or something, you just get, go there and have a glass of kava. Um, it's an insincere building, in my opinion. The, uh, if you go and tap the the masonry, which might seem a bit of an odd thing to do, but if you were walking along that green wall, if you tapped it at the, at the, at the left end, it's nice and solid, but as soon as you get down past it, it's actually very thin plates. And I was able to actually access the photographs of it under construction. It was never anything less than wallpaper. It presents itself as these uh, iconic, um, you know, reductive, there's, there's travertine, there's um, onyx, and, um, and there's green, green marble. But actually, they're just kitchen, dining, you know, just um, slabs um, on, a, on, a, on a steel frame. Also this particular stone doesn't like the weather, so uh, disastrously after about the first five years it went white. I think they found some chemical now to sort of get, get it back to its, because it's you know, the most exquisite dark green when it's fresh, but it's just not meant to be outside. Um, and very you know, beautifully detailed. Now, I'm dwelling on this because this is exactly two years after Gaudí died just as he'd finished doing those extraordinary finials on the top of the Sagrada Familia. So inadvertently, uh, Barcelona played out at that interface between, would architecture be this extraordinary, um, expressive, um, Jugendstil, Nelson Tisma, there were many, many styles that were going through to the the 1920 that seemed to be the dominant um, taste and then there was this emerging. And at the first Congress of uh, Modern Architecture, there was a big debate and people like Hugo Herring and other expressionists, particularly Hugo Herring, was sort of done over. And that was the beginning of a dominant paradigm for architecture that was not only international for the first time that we had a, a, a movement of architecture that literally swept the world, but it remained for 50 years. So I think it's very interesting that Barcelona finished with people like Gaudi, who is probably the, the, the zenith of express, expressive, uh, abstract, sculptural architecture and the birth of this, you know, I mean it's exquisite in its own way, but it's the exact opposite, and yet it became the dominant paradigm, as I say, for two generations. Here's the Corby sculpture, and you can see the, the bleaching of the stone there. Even the columns. Uh, these stainless steel columns are actually, there's a steel column inside it and the st- stainless steel one is, is uh, discreetly screwed to it. So it's, and uh, to use a word of a president of, sort of another country, it's quite fake. <laughs> um, fantastic the way this butterfly effect, you know, the stone's been cut and moved apart. So you get this sort of uh, opening a book Uh, that's wrongly titled, <laughs> I'm afraid. This is Codurk, um, and he is the architect for um, some medium density housing that I thought for a Melbourne audience would be very good to see. This was built in 18, uh, 1975. Codurk, I think it is um, uh, Antonio Codurk, was not only a member of the modern movement, but he was actually a member of Team 10, so they were the most influential group of architects in the middle of the modern movement in the 60s and 70s. And this is this um, uh, medium density housing in a very um, high end part of the city. And if you just start looking at the plans, and um, if you I don't know if any of you have actually taken the trouble to look at the plans of the tower blocks that are on offer to us, you know these things that are going up. I have never seen anything even approaching the sophistication of what you're looking at here. Um, that's many flats you're looking at. And the car parking's underneath. The bit in between the flats is open. It's not. There's no cars going down there. And this is what it looks like. So we used to take the architects there in the 1980s on this, these tours, and they would just scratch their head at the sheer numbers of people that were being accommodated in a way that was actually um, very inviting. So this is something that in Melbourne we need to do more of, in my opinion. It's what's missing in our, our repertoire. We seem to be either going outwards or upwards, but you can get very high densities and um, and a peace and quiet. It doesn't have to be um, And it's one of those projects that it's now you know 40, 50 years old, but just gets better with age as um, things grow. Um, now this is just a, uh, an extraordinary uh, building, I think. It's a tower that was built atypically in 1972 to 1975. Uh, you can just see it. Um, there's the column. Uh, that's Christopher Columbus. And this was the first building in Barcelona to go over 100 meters. And I know so little about it. It's it's never been possible to get inside the building. I don't know if anyone in the room has been there, but I've never been able to get into it. It's actually quite an extraordinary piece of architecture, but just so wrong. It's wrong for the city generally because they um, don't have tall buildings. There's been these uh, occasional aberrations, and this is one of them. Um, The period was famous for permission being given for buildings that perhaps shouldn't have been given permission. Opposite the Sagrada Familia is meant to be open space from the front of the main door all the way down to Diagonal. And in the 1970s, permission was given to build a block of 40 uh, 48 flats, even though it was gazetted as, as, as open ground. Something else must have happened like that there. And I know very little about the architects, except that um, this um, chap is is rebas and he he died. Um, dates got all mixed up. He, he died in um, just a couple of years back. And um, when you look at this block, it's actually if you just forget about the insult it's making to the city and just look at it as a piece of architecture, it's really quite extraordinary. It's twisted which in those days, you didn't have computers, that would have been quite a fate. That's just the fire escape you're seeing in the corner. And then the top of the building, it's like a completely different um, form, an absolute radical piece of tall architecture for its day. I mean, decades ahead, but just in the wrong place, right at the bottom of the Ramblas. There's the, the top. This one's correctly titled. This is um, Ricardo Beaufil um, from the practice that has built both the airports and a lot of um, postmodern architecture. But this project I wanted to show you, I wonder if, how many of you have seen this. It's an old cement factory in um, about 10 kilometers out of the center of the city. And in 1975, this is um, low-cost housing. And, and he designed this labyrinth labyrinthine um, um, collection of like, I get hundred, uh several hundred um, dwellings this is under construction yielding this extraordinary building so on the bottom of the photograph we're looking at the offices and the old cement works and i think it's an exemplary um, project where you've taken something um, like a cement Work, made it into your architectural office and residence. And then there's the Walden 7. Now, um, for a lot of its life, it had a hairnet going around the perimeter of it because the tiles kept falling off. If you see it now, the tiles have been taken off. And because of that, it was very difficult to get into it. So when I took my, my architectural tours, and you need to get into it, as you'll see um, why in a minute, when I show the pictures, there's the cement works down in the, in the foreground. And this is one of four blocks that was meant to be created. And in itself, I think there's something like 16 towers that you can see curl out and then back in again. Um, and then there were going to be four of those, those groups. And it's called Walden 7 after Walden 2, which was a science fiction novel, which I've never read, um, apparently by B.F. Skinner. And there you can see the, at the front there's the, the rest of the project. So I think the tiles have survived on the, on the balconies but not on the f- flat wall. Here's what it looks like on the inside. That's the ground floor. There's quite a few of these that intersect impossible to get through the front door. What you had to do was go in, in groups of four into the pharmacy, that was one of the shops on the perimeter. And while one person asked for something very complicated, three would disappear in through the, the back door. I don't know how you go in there now, but the, um, the people living there hated the, the, but that's looking up from that. That's looking, if you were in that, where you can see those trees or whatever they are, if you're looking up, you're looking at, up through this labyrinth. It's most extraordinary space. 1975, and this is low-cost, okay, and and, and it was genuinely a low-cost building. And there were modules of 30 square meters, so you just either had one 30 square meters or two or three. And then CERT uh, came back from America and led the design for the Foundation Miro which is the, you know, the great Catalan uh, sculptor and painter. So Catalonia is distinguished by the fact you've got um, um, Dali, Miro and Picasso, among others, and Tapies, all great figures of the 20th century art, all from the same city. So um, all of them, the, Picasso has a museum, but not a foundation. This is a foundation that Miro actually, towards the end of his life, contributed to the design. And it's uh, pure cert. This is the the best of the modern movement, I'd say, with the skillful handling of light, volume and it's basically a promenade. You go in one door and you end up going on a journey through the Miro Foundation. This is what it looks like, it's halfway up the hill. And I, I think no visit to Barcelona is complete if you haven't had a chance to visit the Foundation. Views over Barcelona. Quirky bits of Miro. And then the penultimate building to show you is the Igualada Cemetery. Now, Igualada is a difficult place to get to um, in terms of the cemetery, not in terms of the town. It's about 30 kilometres from Barcelona and there's a train every 15 minutes to it. But the actual site um, of the cemetery is, you see it there, it's by... um, uh, Enrique Marías and uh, Kama Pinos. They uh, divorced. Uh, he married Bernadetta tabler um and then he died tragically very young, um, um, I think aged 45 from a brain tumor. But this was a project which I think sort of was the pure synthesis of their um, them as a couple. And um, I interviewed him uh, for a I interviewed him on the subject of um, disaster and um, and collapse. And the reason for that was that there'd been a, one of his buildings, there'd been an engineering failure. And unfortunately, the, the, the magazine that it was for collapsed before it was ever published. So it's never been published. But I got a lot from him because the interview was in Catalan and he told me he'd never been interviewed by a, a Catalan foreigner, a foreigner speaking Catalan. So he was very, um, forthcoming, he came up with lines like um, ah yes computers, because his work always looked like it ought to have been produced by a computer, it's just so complex but it was never, it was done by hand. He said oh computers, yes, the magnificent photocopiers but he, did, but he did tell me in no uncertain terms what he thought about the council that um, decided that the most crummy piece of land was where they're going to put the new municipal cemetery. Cemeteries are very different in Spain. Um, the whole burial ritual is, is different. It's not holes in the ground, it's it's complex. Columbaria and ossuaries and all the rest of it. So in this terribly um, austere piece of, of ground, they worked their magic and sort of played a journey so that um, when you come to visit or whatever you're doing in the cemetery, it's this interface between life and death. And just with the most um, cheapest materials and beautifully wrought architecture. This is one of the chapels. Where, um, it's sort of contemporary now, but I don't know if any of you can imagine what it would be like in the in the time that this was built in the 1980s. This was just absolutely sensational stuff. So we used to trek out there, and every single time, even though I'd been there four months earlier. We could never find the way to the new cemetery. And what was clear when you spoke to the locals, they didn't want to know where it was either because they absolutely loathed it. They thought it was, uh, uh, this wasn't cemetery architecture as they understood it. But even the, the gates, uh, these um, metal, um, metal work, are, 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 designed them, they've designed them to look like crosses in Calvary. So uh, Igualada Cemetery, definitely it's it's actually much easier to find now it's it's sort of become internationally famous and therefore adopted by the community in a different light but it's it's worth the half day it takes to get there it's just um po- poetic in the extreme these are railway sleepers set into concrete again things that perhaps aren't so unusual now but this was the first so i'm showing you something that was done for the first time this sort of uh, uh, material sensibility using such um, I mean, the, the gabion the the walls there are made from the, the engineering gabion trusses you know, just, just wonderful wonderful work so every, everything sort of talking about this sort of pathway of life through to the end Those are the family niches And uh, Miraias himself is buried buried here. And the last building is um, by um, Enrique Ruhevcheli. He has a visiting contract with RMIT, so he's got an Australian connection. Uh, he's a very long and close friend of mine. I think he's one of the most innovative architects in the world, and the building I'm going to show you actually won the world prize for best architecture for ni- uh, 2013 or 14, I think. It's the tick building. Media is, uh, as in media, and TIC is um, ICT, but in the, in Catalan. So it's the fusion of ICT and media in an area called uh, Barcelona uh, 22 At, or 22 Arroba. It's uh, the former industrial centre uh, of, of the city, just outside the um, you know, about a, two kilometers from the um, Gothic quarter, and there's a, the old industrial quarter, has been converted into a sort of science park, but instead of putting the science park outside they put it right in the city to try and encourage development. Uh, he has um, made some reference to Gaudi's drawing for the Casa Mila and produced a building which is intelligent in every way imaginable. It's a 45 meter cube and it's uh, surrounded on the hot sides by these plastic envelopes that come, um, and the ones you can see on the left hand side, when it gets hot olive oil vaporizes into a kind of mist and it gets a 40% reduction of energy apparently. It's got an extraordinary uh, rating for uh, energy use. These pillows on the, on the right hand side have got two um, sheets of plastic with holes in them and when, the, when they blow up the two pieces come together and close off the light So, um, and all the power that runs these are solar generated. But um, one of the most fascinating things about the building is its construction. Um, the, by the way the structure is covered in, fluores- in luminous paint so at night there's this kind of green glow and that's the jellyfish that was the inspiration for that and here's the structure. What he found out was that 16% of construction costs in Spain at that time was the um, cost of the scaffolding you need to support the building while it it goes up. So what he decided to do was build the building with the roof first and then just jack the roof up. Um, The structure has been optimised in the way that Gaudí was with the hanging model. You can see the structure is actually not in any... um, um, regular pattern, it's actually where it needs to be for the forces that it's dealing with. And then if you look at the construction sequence, there's the roof and um, it just kept building each floor because the whole building hangs from that portal. So if you can imagine, can you see on the left hand side there, basically it's what's called a portal frame. So there's a frame, you know, structure up the side and then one going along the top. And each time they built a floor, they would just jack the roof up again. So there was never any scaffolding needed. But not only that, it means that all the floors are hanging rather than supported. And just um, for the non-engineers, metal is much stronger in tension than in compression. So if you can have your building hanging, you have a lot less structure, which means that there is therefore a lot less occlusion. So we're back full circle to the Santa Maria del Mar church, which I said one of the most marvelous things about it is the relative lack of columns. Well, there's, um, in the city of Barcelona, that is being um, observed and interpreted 800 years later. And there you can see just how little structure there is. There's the top floor. Those are the, the ties that are holding all the floors below it. So a remarkable achievement for a young architect. And there's the, the pillows that have the olive oil, and there's the ones with the, the plastic inside. There you can see the, the in detail. And just to finish, full circle on terms of the planning, this is something, um, this is my, um, my provocative bit for Melbourne, because well, this is actually happening, the superblock. Um, So just as in the Casa block, and I told you how with the invention of the motor car and Corbusier realized that with the speed of cars, you needed to make the block a different size. Well, now they're saying that cars have really stuffed up the city. And why is it that we put everything into making things safe for the car and comfortable and not for people? So they have actually, uh, last year, built a super block. They've taken, in fact, the building I've just shown you is, in that square, there, they've closed off a three by three grid. And so on the left hand side, you can see the current model, which is just this chaotic mix of cars, pedestrians, and trucks and buses. And then on the right hand side, you can see that it's been reconfigured. Um, so this is how it works. On the left hand side, you've got in Barcelona, every road is one way, so they usually alternate. And by making it this one, you've still got the alternate up and down, cross, and then you have this um, area that's restricted at 400 meters, so the superblock, where the, the speed is 10 kilometers an hour. Um, they're saying that if you took a well-known square in Grazia, which is 2,000 square meters, that's actually equivalent almost to one of these um, octagonal uh, intersection blocks. In city so first of all to get the um, people used to the new circulation pattern and then on the right hand side you can see what what emerges in terms of urban life the street becomes um, somewhere where you can inhabit not just move your car and then that's the whole of the city with the potential so um, Jury's out, they, there's quite a lot of people not very happy about the, um, what this means in terms of running around in their cars, but there are possibly <coughs> even more people who feel this is the right way to go. Um, my, my money is on the fact that they will do this because I'm gonna conclude this talk by saying that what I hope I've expressed is a s- set of architectural and planning innovations that aren't just a little blip in the continu- continuum, but actually something that Barcelona has consistently offered us. And I think if it does do this, we've got a lot to learn for what we could do with our circulation in Melbourne. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you very much, um, Mark. I just wanted to um, open up to the floor if there are any questions. I can bring the microphone around.
1: Thank you, Um, fantastic uh, talk. I've been to Barcelona a couple of times and Sagrada Familia is, fascinating building, seeing it through all the ages. Um, I, I've wondered how you get from Gaudi to today. Interpretation or divine guidance, how do you, how do you get there? Well, I mean, the fact is that um, the client is still the same client, and they still want a basilica. So that's been the continuity. Uh, I was asked to give a t- talk in Christchurch after the earthquake to try and give them some inspiration for what they might do with their, their cathedral. And um, I said at the end of it, and it's a point I've been making several times since, that I, th- I think one of the things that's really remarkable about uh, Barcelona as a city is it's you know, three million people. Um, there are a lot of cities of that size. All of them could have um, done the same thing as, as, as they have. So first of all, you've got a spot your talent. And that's not something that necessarily happens everywhere. Um, And even if you have spotted your talent, how much room do you give them? And I'd argue that that Catalonia or Catalonia is a country that gives you a lot of space to be creative. And so someone like Gaudi, even though he's dismissed by my lecturers at the University of Cambridge in the UK, in in Barcelona was given a lot of room for maneuver. But the third thing is the most important one is, is the resilience. How many cities, even if they had found their genius, given them space, would then be able to go past um, civil war, through economic cycles, through you know, taste cycles, um, and still c- keep going. So I think it's, it's those attributes, combined with the problem that the client wants to finish their building, has, has kept it going. Plus the fact that Gaudi obviously realized towards the end of his life that he'd, um, he couldn't carry on making these impossible to build sculptures and it had to introduce a very advanced thinking. And the advanced thinking, I was just showing um, somebody at my university this afternoon, you know, right up until um, my contract's effectively finished because the, the, the design's finished, but right up until the last thing I did last year, I was still using aeronautical software, not architectural software. So it means that, uh, and that's because plane builders have been facing the sort of off-site fabrication issues that which are now becoming quite normal for architecture. So inadvertently, Gaudi was a driver for innovation. Um, And the fact that the building kept going, um, needed to be kept going, meant that people like myself had to meet the needs of the day, which is drop the cost and lift, lift lift the speed. So I think every major city, it doesn't have to be a church, it could be a cultural building, could have been doing something like this that would capture the minds of generations, not just... Um, the politicians are going to open it.
0: Um, hello, I'm a, I'm a
1: heritage architect, and so I'm fascinated by this, that split that you described in the
0: 20s, to me, and on one side, and the minimalist modernism, and a crafted background where we have, I think, fundamentally
1: a human scale in what we see and what we do. And I'm interested to know whether you think that can, if you like, reconverge. Uh, Now or then? In the future. So um, if I was giving my Gaudi lecture and I was doing my kind of my normal one, I would show what I had to do for the first period when there were no computers. And so I'm the only person Alive, I'm not the only person ever who's actually worked manually, you know, roturing you know, on the project and digitally. And it meant that inadvertently I, I did my eyesight in at a very young age because it's extraordinarily fine work. And I, I, I've got two brothers and they, they never got glasses until their sort of 50s, and I had glasses since 20s, so I, I, I think it's that, that. So I was quite keen to find ways to um, be more productive. Uh, so when the computer came, I, um, I'm, not a natural in, I'm not naturally inclined to technology, but I was inclined to see what it could do. And I was fascinated by what architectural software couldn't do, which is why I ended up looking at, um, computer softwa- at uh, aeronautical software. Now in the 1990s, particularly when I used to lecture on the building around the globe, I would show lots of computer images which were actually taken with a slide camera from the computer, because you couldn't actually do JPEGs or all that stuff. So you literally had to do the thing on the computer and then photograph it, and, that's, and then show it on a slide, because there wasn't any any of these projectors. And um, I would constantly get people telling me about how clinical the computer was, or this, that, and the other. And um, and I I've, I've found myself... How on earth do you talk to somebody who's never used a computer and has, hasn't actually I'd, I'd say things like, when you do realise that if you ask me what colour is my computer, I can't tell you because as far as I'm concerned, I'm actually in the cyberspace, um, I, I, no awareness what the rat, what the mouse looks like, what colour the cable is, so um, I, I sort of inadvertently became a promoter and I get quite a lot of people saying, well, this is all very well, but what's this got to do with me? And if I knew then what I know now, I'd say, well, hang on 15 years and it'll be you. Because that's, I know exactly that's what the cycle is. Whatever the Sagrada Familia has been doing, 15 years later has become more more mainstream. So the short answer to your question is, I just don't think there is... Um, there are some things which you do by hand. There's some things you might do with the computer. Um, I, there's all sorts of stories, like I've said to stonemasons. Uh, well, when I, when I produced... Um, we produced our first one-two... Um, 50 or 1 to 100 scale model on the printer, which is something you can't do by hand quickly quickly enough. I said oh, you guys must be really upset you know, all that craft and they looked at me and said, well why do you think we want to have our hands you know, up to the elbows in, in plaster all day when we can do the work on the machine? Another one was when the um, I said to Mr. Mr. Mayo, this incredible um, guy, a sort of 80-year-old stonemason, found that if you got a wire with diamonds in it, which you'd normally use for cutting slabs, if you could move the stone in space while the wire was coming down, you could actually do a, a ruled surface. And this meant that the stonemasons, all they had to do was take the last centimeter of stone off and give it the, the texture. And I said to this guy, this huge guy with enormous arm, I said, "Geez, you must be really f- pissed off, you know. honest toil you know sort of hard rock and now we've got this bloody wire he he just again thought i was an idiot he says what i admire is what i do at the end of my fine chisel i don't really want to spend my time producing it so i've just formed a view that it's not it's not that crucial it's what you do intellectually and how that translates into the artifice that's important And, and 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 anything that doesn't convey the humanity of the and the the creativity of the author in my book is something else, it's reproduction. But if if your creativity and humanity is coming out in some way that's uniquely yours, it doesn't really matter for me what the instrumentation is. Not Uh, not a lot of people agree with me.
0: We might have to leave it there, we're at time, but um, can you please join me in thanking um, Mark for this incredible lecture. (laughs)